to the Mike Rosart Show, live every Wednesday. And today we're going to be talking about unplugging. Unplugging yourself from all the stresses, all the stuff you don't want to deal with. That, to me, is what the financial independence, retire early movement, at the core of it, that's what it's about, is trying to find ways to disconnect from the mainstream rat race. And so I guess today we'll talk a little bit about that. And that's been what's been on my mind this week is, you know, when is the right time to really pull the trigger on, you know, selling your business or, um, you know, retiring from that job you don't like or whatever it is that next chapter, right? As you move into financial independence and hopefully you've built a stable base. And so a piece of it is, is financial and it's a large piece. You know, what is that amount that you need and how much passive income do you need? You know, what kind of assets are you going to be investing into? What sort of returns will those produce? That'll be indicative of how much you need. Um, so that's a bit of what we're going to talk about. And unlike this treadmill, where we can't stop continually evolving and growing. And it is human nature to want to grow. Now, we all set goals. We all want to feel like we're improving. That's the biggest, I think, that, that's what it means to be human, is to be continually learning and improving. That's what makes our species so great is that we continue to learn and, and grow and develop. And I think that if you don't have growth, you're going to feel very unsatisfied in your life. And so the way our society is sort of pre-programmed is to feel like we're growing within our careers. We want to see, you know, we get promoted over time. It's, it's directly causation and correlation. The longer you're in a career, the better you are at that you know, better position you hold, right? Like an accountant when they start out as like a staff accountant and eventually they become like a CFO or, you know, head of their own small business. And the same as any profession, the more time you spend in it, the better you get and you progress and grow. And when you early retire, you disconnect from that system of, you know, carrot and stick and sort of like you get like little nibbles of the carrot as you climb the corporate ladder, et cetera, and so forth. Instead, you disconnect from that and you have to find personal growth and meaning in other ways because you're not necessarily trying to climb the corporate ladder or you know trying to grow in some way. And so that's something you have to sort of tackle. And it's a challenge, I think, mentally, when you no longer identify as like you used to be the lawyer or the accountant or the plumber. And now you're not. Now you're like, I'm this person. I'm, you know, I'm the collection of my interests or something to that effect. But it is better, I think, than chasing you know, on the hamster wheel, around and around you go. By the way, guys, if you have any questions, put them down below. Whatever you want to talk about, that's what this stream's for. We talk about anything. So shoot your questions down below and I'd be happy to, to answer or to get on some rabbit holes like I often do. But um, yeah, unplugging, it's tough. I find myself pulled between wanting to grow and by the way, grow, I mean financially as well as spiritually and, you know, et cetera and so forth. Um, but part of, I think, progressing, you know, within my you know, business growth is call it one of my metrics is that I value growing, you know, growing business is valuable to me. So building a cool company or, you know, growing, building something, it feels good. It feels rewarding. And the yardstick that you use to measure your success in real estate, in business is money. Like if you make zero money, people consider you a bad entrepreneur, right? People vote with their wallets. So if you're good at what you do, people will pay you for it. Um, if you're bad at what you do, in most cases, you won't get paid very well for it. And so it's just, I, I guess it's the only real true yardstick we have is, you know, what are you making financially? And so I, I find myself continually growing at financially. And I've gotten to a point now where I talked in my earlier videos in 2018 about frugal and, um, frugal fire or lean fire on the one end of the spectrum and on the other end of the spectrum being this lux fire or uh, fat fire as some people call it and so now i've kind of i'm i could easily be fat or lux fire and i'm getting to a point where i'll just spend money that i wouldn't have spent two three years ago even because it's to a point where i'm making enough i can afford to do that and then once you get used to that lifestyle you're like oh eating out's great might as well eat out or like I have neighbors, by the way, amazing neighbors in my current house, but I back on to um, other houses. And one of my goals has always been to have like tranquility, to have like trees all around me and a huge 
amount of property. Ideally, I still live in the city, so to have a huge amount of property in the city is unrealistic unless you have fat fire type net worth, right? And I'm getting to that point, so I sort of set a goal, like that's something I wanna have. And I know I don't need it. I know that I'm way past you know, more than enough. I don't need to have that. But it's been something that I've been wrestling with is like, you know, where do you stop? When is it enough? And will it ever be enough? And so, I don't know. I know the answer is like, chasing the goal feels pretty good. So I'm gonna keep chasing it and keep growing my net worth. Hopefully not the sacrifice of, you know, good sleep, you know, positive relationships with family and with friends and not sacrificing on quality of life too much. Hopefully, you know, enhancing the quality of life because give me an example, like if I stayed home in 20, geez, that was what, 2017, my daughter was a year old at that time. So in 2017, my wife went back to work for a little bit for a couple of months and then she quit too, but she had to go back. It was required in her mat leave that she had to come back for like three months or something. And so she went back and that was, you know, at a time where we didn't feel financially comfortable to just like pay back all the mat leave. So it just didn't make sense to um, not go back. So she went back and I stayed home with my daughter for, geez, three, four or five months maybe by myself, an at-home dad. And I was also running the properties and, you know, doing a lot of things that I was doing. And I found that extremely stressful. Be at home changing diapers and dealing with a screaming baby all the time while working. There was nothing more stressful than I've ever been through. And I've done like 24 hours straight around properties. Nothing is more stressful than watching your own child. Like just for me, I guess the scream of a baby while you're trying to do any sort of, you know, mental task that requires intensity of, of thought and, and, and that is just, anyway, as an example, I would rather work on a corporate job than do that. Um, being an at-home parent full-time to young babies, just not built for it. Like I'm, I'm a great, I think I'm a great dad. I'm actively involved. I've changed a bazillion diapers. I'm always there. But one of the things I don't like is to be a hundred percent an at-home dad. It's something I don't want to do. Um, I have no interest in it. I'm, I'm happy to, to co-parent. I'm like, you know, me and my wife together tackling the kids. I'm happy to, you know, take the kids to the park for like three, four hours. And I enjoy all that. But like being, if I was by myself all day with our kids, it would, it would deteriorate my mental condition. And so anyway, my point being, sometimes you need to have that sort of structure and early retirement might look a little different for each person. It might be, you know, doing three, four hours of business calls a day. That's for me, I like that. That's, that's an ideal day for me, as opposed to a day where I do nothing or a day where I, you know, have two, three hours of business and then maybe an hour or two of, you know, talking to some friends and then time with family for the rest of the day. That's a way better day than just being stuck at home with the kids all day. Um, I love my girls and I'm pro family. I'm pro spending time. Time with your kids is the best investment you can make in them. It's better than even giving them money is giving them time, your time as a parent. But there's limits to that, right? With your mental psyche. Anyway, that's the rant I wanted to make. It gives these guys some time to put the questions in. Batwood, good to see you on. Hey, D how to greetings, Mr. Rosart. Greetings to you as well. William says, good evening, Mike. March, 2022 is the goal. Thank you, William. That's awesome. And it's good to have goals. I think even if you've already reached a level of financial independence, or you're already retired, or you're already a business owner, and you're looking to get out of your business. What do you do after? It's important to set goals. You have to have something that you're moving towards. You have to have something you're trying to achieve because it's just, it's not a good existence as a human being to not have that level of, uh, I guess, ambition or something to chase. Hey Ellie, good to see you on. Darren, hey Mike, what are your thoughts on RRSPs? I'm in the highest tax bracket in Canada. Should I max out my RRSP every year? What do you think? Uh, Darren, so RRSPs in general are not my favorite tax vehicle, but if you are in the top marginal bracket, definitely 100% be jamming that RRSP full. The idea is the RRSP allows you to shelter 18% of your previous year's taxable um, income. So whatever you, you earned in those previous years. So let's say last year you earned 100, this year you'd be able to put in $18,000 into your RRSP, excuse me, and get a deduction. Um, and then it's cumulative of previous years. So. If you had five years of making 18% or uh, making 100 grand a year, you'd have $500,000 at 18% that you could put in a one lump sum right now to get caught up if you wanted to. So in that case, you could, if you have five years of 100 grand, you could put $100,000 in an RRSP and then you get a deduction. As soon as you put that, you take your after-tax money, you put it in, right? You already paid tax on the money. It's in your bank account. It's your cash. You take your cash, you put it in your RRSP and it becomes 
a pre-tax deduction. So let's say you did five years of RRSP, you're in the max bracket, and then you took all those five years of cumulative RRSP deductions and you applied them all in your sixth year. In your sixth year, you get a deduction against your hundred thousand. Let's, let's assume you make $100,000 every year, including your sixth year. In your sixth year, you have, have $100,000 in income, you would get a tax credit of $100,000 you could apply against that income. Or you could go back retroactively and apply the RRSP deductions against certain years. Um, so there's, you have to look into the rules on it. I'm not 100% familiar about how far you can um, apply those, but I know you can take credits you used in the past and decide to reuse them in a higher tax year. But basically you get a deduction, so that money you put in your RRSP, you get back as if you never paid tax on it. So it takes a, let's say $100,000 RRSP contribution, and it makes it so that the tax you pay on that hundred grand, you get back. So if you're the marginal, max marginal tax bracket, you get a credit back from the government for 50 grand. Put hundred grand in, you get $50,000 back from the government. They're like, here, you pay too much tax, you shelter that income, so here's your tax back. If you're at the top marginal bracket in Canada, that's 52 grand in some cases, money back in your pocket, which is fantastic, right? Now that money's sitting in a tax shelter, you've got 52 grand, take that 52 grand, put your TFSA, boom. Now you get 100 in your RSP that's gonna be taxed at some point when you retire. And then you got another 50 grand from the government back, put that in your, your TFSA, boom, now you have 150 grand. Just by putting 100 in your RRSP, you now have 150,000 plus whatever it grows over time. It'll grow within that RRSP, Registered Retirement Savings Plan. It'll grow in there tax-free until you decide to withdraw from it. And the best part of the RRSP is it is not age-dependent. That's a myth. People thought, hey, um, I can't withdraw from it. If you work those six years and you put the 100,000 in your sixth year, and your seventh year, let's say you get fired from your job, you have no job, you're unemployed. You can go withdraw $30,000 from your RRSP in year seven, and withdraw that almost tax-free because you had no income in year seven. So it get, you get take 30,000 out, all of a sudden you gotta claim the income on that. It's the same as if you earned that income at a day job. So the first 12,000 you earn is completely tax-free. So you take that out first. Uh, there's some cool stuff you can do with spousal contributions too if your partner isn't working. Uh, there's some, some stuff you can do depending on how much contribution room they have in the past, et cetera, and so forth. But you can get pretty cool and get some cool strategies going with the RSP. I've always been a fan of using the RRSP contributions if they're available, even if the, the whole, okay, so the idea with the RRSP is that you're gonna take your deduction, you're gonna contribute to your RRSP in your highest earning years, when you're at your highest tax brackets. And the idea is whenever you're in your lower tax bracket years where you're not earning a lot of money, hopefully it's retirement, could just be you take a gap year, but whenever you have low income tax, that's when you're gonna withdraw from your RRSP. And so you're gonna get a credit at 50% tax bracket for contributing to your RRSP. And then hopefully when you take the money out, you might take it out and pay 15% marginal tax rate or something to that effect. And then you get to net the difference. But not only that, even if you were to withdraw from the RRSP a year later at the same tax bracket, at least you have the time value of those tax savings. So over a 30 year period, even if you contributed at 50% tax bracket and say you retired and you have so much passive income in retirement that you're at a max tax bracket even in retirement, it's still worth it to contribute to RRSP because over you get 30 years. Remember I told you about the $100,000 contribution example where you got a $52,000 tax credit back? That $52,000 tax credit back has been growing and compounding for 30, 40 years, whatever. It, it is like six figures better than what it was when you got the credit initially, right? So the time value of that money makes it, I think, imperative to contribute to your RRSP and it's hard to avoid it. I think it doesn't make sense to not contribute. The The only thing better than the RRSP really from a tax vehicle perspective is the tax-free savings account and the primary residence exemption here in Canada. So your your house that you live in is completely tax-free on all gains if you live in it for more than like 13 months. Um, so that's the most powerful tax shelter we have in Canada. Uh, it's the only reason that I think it makes sense to own instead of rent. Um, you gotta have a property as your primary residence. Uh, second thing is the tax-free savings account. It's amazing. You get a certain, you're limited on how much you can put in, which kind of kind of blows. We're at like 70,000, I think, per person if you haven't had any growth inside of your TFSA. If you've been investing in your tax-free savings account, your TFSA, and it's been growing, then cool, you could have a bigger amount of contribution room because of that growth. But if you haven't, then you're stuck with whatever your limits are for each year. You've been eligible over 18 to contribute to your TFSA. But your TFSA, there's no credit when you put the money in, but you net, it's after-tax dollars going into your tax-free savings account. Unlike your RRSP, you get no deductions, but anything that happens inside your TFSA, when you go to withdraw it, all tax-free. The RRSP, you pay tax when you withdraw, right? Get the credit when it goes in, but you pay tax when it comes out. 
The TFSA, no credit when it goes in, no credit when it comes out. So no tax when it comes out. So it's just like a completely tax-free vehicle. Pretty cool thing. Um, I think eventually the TFSA is gonna be capped because what happens if we let this go over someone's whole life and they contribute to a TFSA and they have 500,000 to a million dollars with growth and you know compound interest in their tax-free savings accounts that the government can't touch. So they have a million bucks sitting in there, let's say getting 10% rate of return. That's a hundred grand a year the government can't tax. So people are gonna have tax-free early retirements for the TFSA if they're smart about it. And so I think eventually the government's gonna step in and be like, holy crap, we shot ourselves in the foot making this tax-free savings vehicle. So what I've seen is whenever they find things don't work, um, the first thing that you, the first thing the government's gonna do is say, we'll lock in whatever's happened so far, like insurance in the 80s. Whole life insurance in the 80s, you could contribute massive amounts of money and have it grow within a whole life or universal life policy tax-free. And in the 80s, like, geez, there's no cap on this. So rich people were putting like $20 million inside of these policies and it could just grow tax-free and they could borrow the money back. You can borrow against your insurance policies. And so they put a cap on it based on the amount of premiums you're paying on the insurance policy. So they, they definitely, but anyone who was on the old, the old policies before was grandfathered in. So get involved now before they cap things, right? Before they realize the error of their ways and they, they put a stop to it, right? So I would say take advantage of whatever the government's offering you, any handout, any, um, not handout, but any, any leg up. The government's incentivizing with the TFSA to save. They're saying to Canadians, save your money and invest it. Um, most people use the TFSA as a tax-free savings account and they just like leave it at their bank, but use your TFSA to invest in stocks, invest in, like you can just open a TFSA with a brokerage account and then you can grow it faster or you can use your TFSA to do private lending. You could lend mortgages from your RSP and TFSA and fund people's deals who you find you know, through your real estate network. It has to be arm's length, but you can go ahead and, and fund their deals and you get 10, 12% return, et cetera, so forth. So there's, there's opportunities there that people aren't taking advantage of and the government's literally saying, please save money for your future, for your retirement. The government's saying, we can't afford to pay for your retirement, save for yourself. Here's a tax vehicle to help you do it. And so listen to the government. That's what they want you to do. Eventually, if enough of us listen though, they'll I'm sure cap it and put limits on it and restrictions further than there already are. Uh, like the Canon Shell Benefit, you guys have heard me rant about that. Um, maybe not enough on this YouTube channel, but here in Canada, there's something called the Canon Shell Benefit. Every single person who has less than 30,000 a year in income gets about $600 cash tax-free per month per child, uncapped. 10 kids, 6,000 a month cash in your account. If you're a lawyer, quit your job and take care of your kids. If you're a doctor, quit your job, take care of your kids. Uh, if you don't shelter the income, the government's gonna claw back that Canada Child Benefit. The higher your income, the more the clawback. Basically it works up to like a 70% effective total tax if you have kids. If you have two or three kids or more and you make more than 60 grand a year, it makes sense to actually quit your job. Um, in the current system, the way Canada set it up, they're incentivizing people to have kids and they're incentivizing the free money for the kids. So listen, again, listen to the government. They want you to have kids. They're gonna pay for it. Uh, they're gonna give you 6,000 something. It's more than that with the Ontario benefit. Six, $7,000 a year per child, cash, tax-free, in your account, deposited monthly per child. Like, just to me, that's, that's a dumb policy, but I get their point. Like they want the refugees that come here who have six kids to collect $7,000 a month and not work. Um, that's their, I, I don't know if that's their intent, but that's how it's being abused right now. And they're incentivizing people with kids. They want the population of Canada to grow. Um, anyway, I'm getting off that rant right now. Thank you for the question. It definitely got me, uh, me going. Bark Charles, Charles Lee says, how much do you live off of per year? And you know, it depends. It depends on a lot of factors. Um, I had a lot of fluctuation as of recently, and it depends, I guess, if you just, do you include mortgage pay down? You know, the mortgage principal pay down on my house, it's basically savings. But do you consider that forced savings vehicle to be an expense? Like your mortgage, say it's $2,800 a month. And you know, a thousand of its interest and 1800 of its mortgage principal pay down. I would consider that 1800 to not be an expense. Uh, another thing is like um, renovations. If I renovate my house and spend $50,000 renovating my basement or $100,000 renovating my basement, is that like an expense? I just added value. Let's say I did it strategically and I added $100,000 in value to my house that I live in. Now that $100,000, is that living expenses? Because if you include those, I'm spending well in the six figures. Like if you include business expenses too, I probably spent a 
couple hundred, more than like 250,000, 300,000 a year if you include business expenses. Now, if you include my personal spending, I don't spend near that much. Like you guys have known, I was famous for living on less than two grand a month with a family. Um, so it depends on what you decide is personal spending, business spending, and then even on the personal spending, some of it is like savings for the future. Like, do you include the RESP contributions that I make to my daughter's registered education savings plan? The government matches 20%. Do you consider that an expense? I spend $400 a month just on that for my kids. Um, do you consider you know, the mortgage pay down? Do you consider investments in my house, investments in tools or whatever? Like I, or investing in you know my brain, investing in things like that. Are those considered investments for business? Like when I got my courses related to, to real estate, um, would that considered a personal spending? If that's the case, then I sometimes spent six figures in a year, right? Especially every house I've ever lived in, I've had major, major uh, contributions financially to renovations to increase the value. And so some people I've seen in the fire community say, hey, I spent $5,000 renovating my basement. That was an expense. They add that into their budget. But I would say it's a one-time expense to increase the value of the home, so I would deduct that. And so the answer is, uh, a huge range. I spend between probably 15,000 and 250,000 in a year, depending on what you include and don't include in the uh, spending. Okay, next question. And as you guys know, the super chat gets you pumped up to the top of the priority list, but I'm gonna keep working my way down. And if I miss your question, put it in the comments later and I'll answer it for everyone to see. Mike says, I'm working right now at 20 to become a software developer and retire by 40 max. Do you have the problem where you have, are retired, where all your friends are busy and you're not? Mike, what I've found is when I sort of retired and stepped away from the corporate world, I just stopped hanging out with the friends who worked the nine to five. Not, not entirely, there's still a few friends that I hang out with, but you just change your circle. Like it just so happens that I hang out mostly with entrepreneurs or other people who are real estate investors like myself, because we have common habits, we have common uh, goals, we have common interests, um, you just, yeah, I mean, you might still hang out with those friends and talk to them, but yeah, I'm sure it's a challenge if, you know, you don't have a partner to hang out with or your partner's not retired or, you know, et cetera. If you have kids and a partner that's retired too, then you're busy enough just with your significant other probably to keep busy, but it depends on where you are in your life cycle. If you're single and you used to hang out with your friends all the time and now they work eight to six and you don't, then that'll be lonely. You'd need to make a new circle of friends or something to do with your time. So yeah, those will be challenges that you'll have, but they're easy to overcome. It's not going to be, you know, game changer. Uh, I think, by the way, starting at 20 as a software developer, high paying field of work, by four you should be able to retire, no problem if you can maintain at least a 50% savings rate. Jarrett says, hey Mike, what books would you recommend at the moment? Jeez, I, um, what books do I have on my desk right now? Um, oh, uh, there's a book, uh, I think it's called Money for Nothing. Um, I think that's the name of the book. That's one that I would recommend as a stock um, stock options trading book, mostly around like a value investing type buy and hold strategy. Um, Early Retirement Extreme is a book that I love, I'm a big fan of. I haven't read it recently, but I was a big fan of it. One of my gateway books was Early Retirement Extreme. Another of my gateway books to financial independence was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, another of my gateway Oh, uh, one of my first ever, even before the retirement extreme, the book that got me into it was The Wealthy Barber. I read that in a book report in like grade nine or something and it opened my eyes up to the power of compound interest. Now, they assume a really high growth rate and there's some assumptions in there that don't hold true today, but the basic concepts, if you like a nice fiction book that introduces you to the concept of early retirement, it's a fantastic one. Um, there's a second one, The Wealthy Barber Returns or Wealthy Barber Two. Um, that I really like as well. Um, I'm trying to think of other books. You know, in uh, in business school, I read so many economics and finance books, and some of those touched on pieces of what I understand today. But I don't do a lot of book reading, to be honest. Most of what I read is like just on my phone articles from you know wherever. I used to read like Mr. My Mustache's blog. I used to read, every, I read every single one of his posts up until 2017. I had read every single one. There was not a single post, earlyretirementextreme.com or Mr. My Mustache that I hadn't read, um, I don't think. Might have been one, but like, pretty sure I read all the posts there. Uh, and that was like a book to read all those posts. 
lots of other blogs too that I used to kind of follow. And same, I find articles people send me and things like that that I mostly just read articles these days. But um, yeah, books. Wish I had more time to read books. I don't have any other good recommendations except for those ones. Next question. Mike, is there a Section 8 equivalent in Canada? Any opinion concerning it? Thank you. I don't know what Section 8 means. Um, if Section 8 means bankruptcy, then like we have a Canadian bankruptcy. You have to clarify for me. I'm not up to date on the Section 8. I don't know what that uh, refers to. Batwood says, always got to have goals. And you retired so early that you have so much life energy left to devote yourself to many pursuits. This is true. Definitely, especially if you're retiring you know, in your 20s or 30s. Dave Goggin says, Mike, it's Dave from the Republic of Ireland. Europe again, tuning in live for the second time. Working on my financial website right now as a side hustle as we speak. Good for you. Welcome. Uh, Watts says, hey, Mike, what's up? Not too much. Warner Art Productions says, Trump 2020. <laughs> Honestly, I, I'm indifferent really, but um, from a, I'm not really a big fan of Trump. I don't think he makes a lot of good life decisions. I think he's an idiot on Twitter, but I do like the way the Republicans have been governing. They've covered a lot of ground. He's also the first president ever that hasn't engaged in war during his entire four year. Um, running or whatever as he ran the country. So every other president has engaged in war. So I think the cool thing about Trump is that he's pro-business and pro-business typically means peace. Like the economy does the best when there's peace. And so like Obama, he couldn't say that, he was going to war. Trump's like trying to avoid war. He's like, I'm gonna solve things in Korea, I'm gonna solve things, you know, wherever there's issues, like the whole Israel thing, whatever. He's trying to, trying to avoid conflict because it's bad for the economy, smart. Avoid conflict. Um, if I was going to govern or rule, you know, over a nation, I would try to avoid conflict too. Conflict's stupid. Focus on the economy. Focus on the people. Give everyone the opportunity to succeed. If people don't want to succeed, when they're given, like, if you hand them the tools to succeed and they don't want to use them, that's their fault. Um, everyone should have the opportunity to rise up. Everyone should have the chance to go to school. Everyone should have the chance to take on whatever profession they want. Everyone should have the chance to. You know, all the opportunities to chase whatever it is they want to do. But if they don't want to put the work in, then they deserve to have nothing. Um, you should have what you work for in this world, and that's what I believe. But everyone should have the opportunity. I grew up poor. And so I think if I didn't have the opportunity to enter post-secondary because I was poor, or didn't have the opportunity to take on whatever venture I wanted to take on because I grew up with nothing, um, that isn't fair. I think there should have been more out there to help. Like, I was an anomaly, and then I was able to escape poverty and and now I'm you know, extremely successful. But I think you need a lot of support to, to grow and flourish right, as a human being. And we need more support systems for those in the bottom, the bottom half of society who really need help, who maybe are anti-Trump because they're suffering right now. And I get it. I get a lot of the liberal, you know, Democrat voting snowflakes. They really want, and it's so stupid. People vote on the dumbest things. They vote on like, I have a couple of friends who are, who are gay and they're like, I'm going to just vote for whatever's good for that one issue. And I'm like, do you not care about the economy? Like, no, I don't care about the economy. That doesn't matter to me. I'm, I care about this issue, like gay marriage. That's what's important. And I'm like, okay, okay. Like, I think it's an important issue, but why is that? Like, we shouldn't just be voting on one issue. We should be able to vote on all these different issues. And I wish there was a way that the voting system would allow us to vote on every single issue. Like have an abortion discussion, have a, you know, gay rights discussion, have a, you know, whatever, welfare discussion, have a healthcare discussion, and have an economy discussion. Don't vote all in one package, because what if, like, some things that Trump might stand for, I might stand against, right? I might be pro, you know, uh, gay marriage, where I'm, maybe I'm, but I'm also pro the economy. And I don't think Biden is both those things. Like, so there's just conflicting views, I think. It's hard to vote for just one person. So I, it's just a shitty system. It really is. However, it turns out, you know, I I'm sure we'll all survive. We'll all move on. And it'll be just fine. 
What are your thoughts on life insurance policies as an investment? Watts. So I used to be licensed to be able to sell um, life insurance. So I'm well versed in the in the whole life insurance space, and I worked for one of the best providers of that in Canada. And so I can comment at a high level. Everyone, everyone who sells insurance, I hear them you know, get on social media and talk about how great it is and this and that. The truth is, statistically speaking, you're gonna live. Statistically speaking, you're not gonna claim insurance. And so for most people, insurance is a bad investment. But if you die, it's a good investment. If you get really critically ill, it's a good investment. Statistically speaking, when you need the money, you won't qualify for it because of some exemption or you just won't need the money in general. Um, so now let's talk about insurance. That was like insurance in general. Now, whole life investment insurance or universal life insurance, or there's a couple of different names for it, but basically um, you pay an insurance premium and get an amount of insurance coverage, and then you pay an additional amount that goes into a savings account or an investment account within your insurance policy. And they'll pay you a fixed amount of return with you know some sort of guaranteed um, downside protection, like a seg fund typically is what they're mostly investing in inside of these whole life insurance policies. But they'll pay you say a fixed return, call it 5% inside of your policy. And all the growth within that savings account in the policy is tax-free. And so if your tax rate is high enough and you're in the top marginal bracket and you've maxed out your RSP and your TFSA, and if you have kids, your RESP, those things are all maxed out and you're in the top marginal bracket, whole life insurance is an amazing product. You can borrow the money back. It grows in there tax-free. It's a fantastic product. The fees related to the insurance are less than the total tax savings. So your total tax savings are greater than the fees of the insurance to set that up. Because the fees are a lot, by the way. The first year of premiums on your whole life and your universal life policies pretty much goes to fees. It goes to pay the agent who sold you the stuff, huge, massive commission checks. It goes to pay you know, the insurance company and all the people associated with it. So the first couple of years you're invested in it, you lose all of that to fees. And so you gotta factor that in that it's not a good investment. Over a 10 year period, the tax-free savings account blows away the, because it's tax-free, right? They're both after-tax dollars in your whole life policy. It's after-tax money you're contributing. And unless it's in a corp, in which case it could be pre-tax corp earnings, in which case it can make sense. Um, I think it can make sense to have your, like my business should have a policy on me. That would make sense because it's a deductible for the business. There's arguments where it can make sense there when you use corporations to structure your insurance investment vehicles. But not talking about that right now, talking strictly about for an individual person, doesn't make sense. If you make $50,000 a year or less, which is a lot of the people who are buying life insurance, what you'll, what you'll find is they don't need life insurance and it's not a good investment. And most of the people who sell, most of the financial security advisors and financial advisors that are selling this crap are selling to their dad who makes 60 grand a year and their friend who makes 60 grand a year who is not in the top marginal bracket, who's paying like an average 20% tax rate. And the fees for the insurance are higher than the tax savings. And they're, t they're touting and you know bragging about how great the tax savings are. Oh, this is gonna grow. You know, In 10 years, you can borrow money out of it. There's some cool things you can do with the infinite banking. Infinite banking concept is basically the idea that you build some cash value inside of your investment account within your whole life insurance policy, and you can borrow it out, and the investments will pay the interest on that loan associated with that policy. So it's like you're getting the cash out tax-free and it's this great thing. It is a cool thing. If you're in the top marginal bracket, it makes sense. I should have a huge life insurance policy. I don't, and I know better. I, I should start structuring something. It's, I should write a note to myself to go and do that now because I am getting into the top marginal brackets. But the other co conflicting piece is it might make sense for someone like myself, let's say you're a dentist or a doctor or whatever, and you can shelter income out of a corp and you have kids, young kids. It might make sense to just take $30,000 a year income from your corp collect the maximum Canada child benefit, which is like 600 bucks a child cash in your account. So with three kids, let's say, you're looking at like almost two grand a month cash coming in. It's 24 grand a year tax-free. In that case, whole life insurance makes no sense because your tax bracket's really low. You've kept all your income inside of your corp. As an individual, you're not paying the maximum tax bracket. So it doesn't make sense to have a whole life insurance policy. And so in a lot of cases, it doesn't make sense and it's oversold. I saw a lot of agents writing up a lot of policies that people shouldn't have had. And you know, you'll, you're giving these case studies like, 
uh, a guy who's been paying the whole life insurance for 30 years and like he got 2 million bucks in his whole life insurance account. Had he not set up that policy, if he just given all those policy premiums to an investor or to like whatever, to some investment company or let's just say their financial advisor had taken those funds and invested them in exchange ETFs, in cheap low MER ETFs, he'd have way more money right now and he'd be able to access it easier. And out of taxes, he'd have more money. And so they go on to these, these use case, they call them um, case scenarios, use case scenarios, where it makes sense for whole life insurance, universal life. For 95% of the Canadian population, it doesn't make sense. For the top 1% and potentially top 5%, it can make sense. For the, for the top 1%, it probably makes sense for most of the top 1%. Um, if, you're, if you're making three, four, five hundred thousand $500,000 a year, it definitely makes sense. If you're in the top, top marginal tax brackets, open up a whole life insurance policy. Um, ideally find someone who can hook up a universal life policy and, um, and start investing in that. And, and then you can borrow the money back. There's some cool things you can do with it. It can make a lot of sense. Uh, but for most people, it doesn't make sense. For most people, the fees associated with the, with the premiums for the insurance uh, aren't worthwhile. So you'll hear advisors argue, oh, but there's the value of the insurance. And in a lot of the cases, for like half of Canadians, it's cheaper just to buy a term policy and invest the difference in the policies between whole life and term into an investment account. And you'd have more money at the end of the day. So something to think about. There's my rant about that. I'm sure all the financial advisors watching are like, screw you, Mike, kill my business. But you know what? Like, Do your homework for your client and, and make sure it actually makes sense. I think a lot of advisors, it, honestly, the LQP insurance um, licensing doesn't give enough training. There's no scenarios that compared investing in TFSA to a whole life insurance product. And uh, Freedom 55 and Canada Life and all those places, they don't give you those illustrations. They don't teach their agents in the training program and their advisors how to run those simulations because then the advisors would never sell any of the insurance. They want them to sell the insurance, right? They don't care if the client gets a 5% return when they could have got an 8% return elsewhere as long as they're getting their fee and it's making sense, right? So it's a conflict of interest in this whole industry. But it is what it is. We're not gonna change it. It's gonna be really hard to change it. A lot of us have to get together to try to change it. I don't even believe in commissioned. Um, I don't even think agents should be commissioned. I think it should be fee-based. The whole financial advising industry should be fee-based. It should not be pay based on what you get people to sign up for because then there's a conflict of interest. Prapa Param says, hey Mike, I heard you say to always go on title for JVs, but I have heard other investors say going on title will also affect future borrowing power. Any thoughts on this? It is true. Um, both of those things are true. Always go on title, uh, always have a stake in title, and don't go on title. <laughs> they're, they're both true. Um, <laughs> let me explain. So if you plan to get a lot of properties, then going on title with someone, let's say you go on title, two people go together on title, 50-50, husband and wife. Most banks will force you to qualify with 100% of the mortgage payment in your name and only give you 50% of the rental income. So you'll have a negative offset, it's not good. Uh, whereas if you bought the property separately, then you have better ability to qualify. You'll be able to buy more properties because most banks have a limit on the number of properties you can buy with them. Uh, you say you'll be able to get more properties buying them one at a time in your own name as opposed to JVing with a friend and then you both lost one property from your total limit that you can have and your debt servicing ratios will be really bad because again, they only take half of the income and they're gonna be 100% of the expenses. It's stupid. They should give you half of the income and half the expenses. But for some reason, they're like, well, what if the other partner doesn't pay the mortgage? And so you should be liable for 100% of the mortgage and only half of the rental income? It's like, what? If the other partner isn't paying half the mortgage, I'm gonna use 100% of the income to cover it, but whatever. Banks are being super conservative. So that's why you don't wanna go on title. The less people on title, the better from a financing perspective. Don't put your wife on title with you. Ideally, just one of you guys on title. It's much better. Now, at the same time, if you want to try to save mortgages and you partner with a friend and they go on title and you're like, hey, I don't want to waste one of my mortgage spots, one of my mortgage qualification spots, um, does it make sense to, um, you know, does it make sense instead to grab, okay, so here's the way to actually shop for it. The, the line of thought is that by setting up that way, you'll be able to buy more properties. But if that person screws you and you're not on title, then you get zero, nothing. 
And so don't be me. I did that in a couple of deals. I didn't go on title. I didn't register. And I've had investor partners screw me. They went and sold the property without my consent and paid me nothing. Good luck litigating after the fact. Your JV agreement's worth, go wipe your ass with it, right? Unless you want to fight in court for five years. And in some cases, it isn't even worth it. So I've learned that, um, and in some cases, you know, it might be worth litigating. Depends on how much equity is in the property. But my point is, the right way to do it is after the mortgage is registered, you go register a second mortgage for your interest and a notice of interest. So they need your sign off to sell the property, refinance the property, do anything with the property. You're like the lender on the property and set up a second mortgage or a third mortgage or whatever for your interest in the property. Even if there's no equity left over, put a third mortgage on it to register that, hey, I'm an owner on this property. They can't do anything without my sign off. That would be what I would do. Um, I'd want to do that from the beginning. I don't know why we never ended up doing it. Uh, we had talked about doing it and then just never got around to it because it was like 900 bucks or a thousand bucks. In hindsight, I should have done that with every JV I ever did was register a second mortgage on title to protect my interest. When the property appreciates, my second mortgage is right there. They want to try and do anything, they got to pay me out. The lawyer literally can't close title without me signing off. Hey, I'm a JV partner. I've got a registered mortgage on the property. Lean against title. That's how you protect your interest. And if you want to go refinance, you guys decide you're going to refinance, pull off the second mortgage. Cool. Sign to the lawyer. Hey, I'll pull off a second mortgage. We can put the new mortgage on. As soon as that new mortgage is on and it's all done, and I'm going to slap my mortgage right back on there, my second or third mortgage right on there to make sure my interest and my equity, my half of the equity or whatever the JV structure, that's how you ensure you're secure and you're safe without uh, having a mortgage spot kind of erased. So that's the way you'd handle that situation without having any issues at all. Hopefully that was a, a little value add tip right there. That's a thousand dollar tip right there. It took me thousands of dollars to come up with that solution right there. I lost six figures not knowing that the answer to that question right there and doing all the GVs that I did without structuring that way. So don't be me. Be smarter than me. Learn from my mistakes. Connor says, hey Mike, all the way from Australia. Considering the almost non-existent yields here, could I get your thoughts on purchasing a manager's unit within a complex management rights as a first purchase? Wait, I'm read that again. Your thoughts on purchasing a manager's unit with complex management rights as a first purchase. So I don't know what a manager's unit is. I'm going to assume that's like a condo, um, like a condo board or something. Uh, anytime there's a complex... Uh, body like a condo board that maintains a you know a condo complex or something then you're restricted in what you can do I hate being restricted I like to be as free as I possibly can in my options within my investment so if I want to put in a pool I want to be able to do that if I want to renovate and add another bathroom or bedroom or whatever I want to be able to do that and a condo might not allow you to do that if I want to put on Airbnb the condo might say no uh, whereas if you have a detached property there's not going to be any board no HOA, no condo fee, whatever. I don't know. It could be like an HOA you're talking about. It's detached houses in a community or something. I don't know. Uh, probably it's what you're talking about. And just in Australia, it has a slightly different name. Uh, I would say avoid that if you can. If there's another suitable option that's within the cost range, go with that option. Uh, but if it's a significant difference in price, like half the price, and you have to deal with a stupid management board, it might be worth it because you've got such a discount and there'll be more cash flow, et cetera. Um, I don't know, I'd have to look at the opportunity, right? To really, to really be able to tell you whether it's worth it or not. Um, but there's opportunity everywhere. Even in this low interest rate environment, people are getting 10% or more return easily. There's lots of things you can invest in that will give you a great return. Of course, you, know, you wanna balance your risk to your reward as well. Uh, Prapa Prom says, have you bought any new deals recently? Um, yes, yes, I'm closing on a few deals. I actually just inked up one today an off-market deal that I'm excited about. Um, secondary dwelling unit conversion. I think it's got a nice juicy six figures amount of equity in it, doing it with my mentee. Uh, and I just have a couple other deals more recently as well. So I'm still taking down deals, but I'm only buying vacant possession. So I don't inherit tenants anymore. It's a firm rule. All of the problem tenants I've ever had have inherited. So I just don't want to inherit tenants anymore. not interested. Uh, the other thing is I'm putting in management in place from day one, I'm trying not to be involved. That's a key piece as well. Uh, no, a GB contract is not enough to protect you. I mean, legally speaking, you could go litigate with one, but it's very, very tough. Um, whoever controls title has all the power. You'll be, they could have sold the property already and you'd be litigating years later. So it's tough. What the other partner will try to argue is they'll be like, there's negligence and duties, or they'll try to find a reason to not pay you out. Like, hey, you didn't do a good enough job, so 
here's why I don't want to pay you. But like the GB contract, you'll end up winning because when they sign and agree to share half of profit, it doesn't matter how it goes, good or bad, they have to share uh, if there's profit. And if there's loss, then they can come after you too with that GB agreement. So in most cases in real estate in the last five years, there's just been huge wins because look at what the market's done here, right? Okay, so here's some context. Small residential complex, 50K salary with purchase price at 400,000, including the property itself, a three bedroom villa house. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I have to look at the numbers. I don't, I don't know whether it's a good investment or not. It could be a terrible investment. Um, could be a good investment. It's hard for me to say without you know having looked at the actual investment, but uh, probably a decent investment. If you can get cash flow from it, then you might get the appreciation long-term. I think the government's going to continue to print money. All the developed nations were promoting stimulus because of COVID. Um, so that will cause all the asset classes to rise, right? So real estate's one of those major asset classes that's going to rise. And if they print a bunch of money, guess what? The value of real estate goes up 20, 30%, 20%, 30%, and the buying power of the dollar is basically going down, right? Um, because they're printing so much money. When applying for mortgages, will banks also qualify the mortgage you contribute to your RSP towards your total income? Um, I've had, that's a good question. I think they take, yeah, they would take, if you're getting a salary, like they would take what's on your pay stub. So it wouldn't matter. If you contribute to RSP, I don't think they would take um, net of RSP contributions. But if you're, I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know the answer to that one. I think it would depend. I think there's probably a bank out there that would be conservative enough to look at your total uh, net income after RSP deductions and might say, hey, only last year you made 50,000 net of deductions. And so it might come to bite you in the ass. But probably most lenders could explain it away with a pay stub and say, hey, it's a one-time RSP contribution or something. And... Um, I think you'd be okay. Top six is how can I increase my income while I'm in school in order to take on a mortgage 280 plus? I have 180K in equity for a conversion project. Um, could you rent out bedrooms or something or you know, make a small unit in your house now? Because that extra rental income could help you to qualify for a bigger mortgage. There's an idea. Maybe you could pick up a side hustle. That would maybe help too. Yeah, it's tough when you're a student without a full-time job to qualify and pull that equity out without going to a private B lender. But you could do that too. Jasmine says, have you paid your house off? If no, you have to pay property taxes now that you are retired. Um, no, I've not paid off my house. I don't believe in paying off your house ever. Um, unless your risk tolerance is like zero. Uh, I, I believe that my mortgage right now on this house is 1.34% five-year variable. So at 1.34%, I am 100% confident I can take all the money that I have borrowed from my house and invested at a much higher rate, probably 10, 12% more, right? And, and get that kind of return. And if the cost of that money is like 1.3%, it's like free money. Why would you ever want to pay off your mortgage? That's guaranteeing yourself a 1.34% return. That's terrible. Um, so I like to refinance even my primary residence as often as I can to pull the money out. Pay off house is a bad idea. But yeah, of course you would have to pay off your property taxes um, in your expenses. Like your budget would have to include property tax. It would have to include, uh, you know, eating out or whatever, all your expenses. Anything you're gonna spend money on, get included. I think the part of your mortgage payment that's mortgage principal pay down, you could maybe say, hey, I need the cash for that every month, but I'm planning to refinance it every five years. So make a plan to reinvest the mortgage pay down because it's really just savings. Elias says, I'm a taper making $900 to $1,300 a day. Wow. Which tradesperson you've seen who make the most with little effort? Um, so you're asking like, which tradespeople make the most money? Um, typically what I've seen is, and that's really good by the way. Um, typically what I've seen is like electricians and plumbers tend to make the most. And I, like, if you're making $200,000 a year in the trades, you're doing really well. $1,000 a day means like if you work every day, you're making 365 grand a year. That's really good. Uh, most tapers don't make that much money. You've gotta be really good and set up a bunch of like really juicy commercial jobs or something to make that kind of money. Um, yeah, most, I think on average, if you went to like indeed average salaries, you'd see like a, a drywall taper probably is making 50, 60 grand a year normally, maybe a bit more. Um, but maybe not every day you're making that, right? That 900 to $1,300 a day. Um, I don't know. But yeah, it, it can be really good pay. Like 
a thousand dollars a day is better than most lawyers, better than most accountants, better than most, you know, white collar professions. Um, especially if you can do some jobs like a taper doing houses can maybe do a couple jobs for cash or for barter, in which case like you could potentially make even more. You probably have to claim it, but like at least you'd have more cash up front to get to pay the tax on it. Should I invest in stock course, Mr. Hamilton's stock course for short term income increase? Um, I haven't done it yet, but I've heard really, really good things from people I've talked to who have taken the course. So it comes highly reviewed, highly recommended. I, I will be taking it. I'm in the process. I just don't have the time right now to dive into it and give it the time that it needs. I'm focused on finishing off a bunch of real estate projects. And so when I get all that done, then I'll dive into it and I'll let you know how it goes. Have you tried, oh, next question. Have you tried to run stock hacking yet? How do you like the strategy? So at a high level, from what I can understand, it's a fantastic strategy. I plan to employ it, but I haven't had the time to dig into it and take the course yet. Um, I want to, I do. It's on my list of things to do, but I've got a bunch of other stuff I've got to do first. Hey Mike, are you investing in the stock market or being distracted by the noise, not being able to focus on real estate and how you do your research on current topics? Uh, I don't do any research at all. I just talk out my ass. Um, <laughs> no, seriously. Uh, I just am talking to people, you know, reading some articles here and there, um, living and, and breathing real estate for so long. That's how I, you know, picked up what I know. Um, most of it has been just like Google talking to professionals in the field, like talking to mortgage brokers, talking to you know, other realtors and things like that. And I might read the occasional economic report. Um, but yeah, when talk, it comes to the stock market, I, I honestly haven't had the time. I've been so focused on, I'm trying to get 10 properties sold, trying to get a whole bunch of stuff figured out. So um, yeah. need to get a lighting kit from Amazon, less than 100 bucks, deliver your videos. I actually have a lighting kit, I just gotta go like unpack it and bring it down here. Um, pure laziness, pure laziness. Thanks though, I do do know that I need to, need to get on that. I know that lighting on my eyes and whatever is not ideal, but it is what it is. Hey Mike, William and Don here. We wanted to thank you for continuing to share so much, appreciate it. William, happy to do it every week consistently. Even when I don't have something to talk about, you guys find the right questions to ask to keep me mumbling. Wen says, uh, hi Mike, keep up the good work. Thank you. Uh, William says, section eight is subsidized housing. There are incentives to build and the government will also help with rent, TY. Yeah, there is a similar program to that in Canada. Um, it's very restrictive. There's a program here in Ontario where they'll provide you a certain amount of money at 0% interest to renovate the property, but you have to rent only to the low income tenant. And what I found is that the $100,000 renovation work will be gone after 10 years because they've just, like the low income tenant destroys the property, right? They've got lots of pets. On average, they have more pets, more kids, um, more drama. They're at home more. It's stuff just, I don't want to like stereotype, but like it's just what I've seen is that the damage rates are much, much higher. Um, whereas in the higher income brackets, you'll find people typically are not home. They're working a lot. They come home. If they have... They have an issue with like bugs. They treat themselves, like they just take care of it. Whereas the low income tenants, like they don't have money to take care of it. And so issues become major issues. There's a small plumbing leak. You know, the wealthy person might just hire a plumber and front the hundred bucks and then say, I'll take it off my rent next month. And the landlord's like, cool. But the poor person can't afford the hundred bucks for the plumbing repair. So they, and they, they don't want to bug the landlord because they don't want to get it, like they're already behind on rent. So they don't want to get evicted. And so they just don't say anything. And the house gets ruined because there's a leak under the sink that eventually like collapses the whole floor. That's been, on average, what I've seen, now, not always, you know, there's, there's, except, there's some fantastic low income tenants, but on, for the most part, they're struggling the most with day to day life, right? And so when you cater to that customer, um, you need to budget a lot more for turnover and damages and bad debt expense, et cetera, and so forth, just is what it is. So I found that investing in that type of housing has not been a preference for me. Now, some people make a lot of money doing it and power to those people. But I've found that the, the stress and the additional damages and wear and tear isn't worth the benefits that you get from the Ontario government uh, or the federal government for those programs. Hey Mike, hey, how you doing? 45 watching right now and only eight likes. <laughs> now we're at 15, there you go. Jackson says, hey Mike, love the show. It's better to stay 
in a safe, high paying job that you dislike to qualify for mortgages or going to full-time wholesaling or something like that. It's not the answer all of you wanna hear. You all, and I got a lot of messages about this. The answer is stay in your job, qualify for the mortgages. Once you've maxed out your mortgages, leave your job. It's not the answer you wanna hear. It's the answer that it's what I did, it's what a lot of us have done that have had the most success in real estate. It's not the funnest, it's not, you know, it's the least risky and it's probably gonna have the best expected outcome. Probability times return, it'll have the best expected outcome. So I would say statistically speaking, don't leave your job. Um, suffer through and moonlight, which means in the weekends and evenings, push the real estate stuff and continue to stay at the day job. It sucks, but it's better for you. Um, I'm sure you wanna quit and, and do like a fire lifestyle now, but your financial self five years from now will be thankful that you didn't quit um, too early. So don't pull the parachute too early. I'm a fan of waiting. Um, most wholesalers fail. Most entrepreneurs fail. So without a good, solid financial foundation base, you won't do as well as you would have done. Maybe you'll do all right. Maybe you'll do well. But statistically speaking, you'll do better with a solid financial base before jumping out of the plane and pulling the parachute. That's just my thought. Uh, but you could be an anomaly. It could be that 1% that succeeds. If you lose your job and have a mortgage renewal, do you automatically get renewed? Yes, you do automatically get renewed. Uh, whether or not, uh, so renewals happen automatically, they give you a new term, you can negotiate on your interest rates, but you won't be able to borrow more money. So to go back for more money, it'll cost you, uh, like your, your job will cost you that, that, but it won't cost you a refinance if you're trying not to pull out any more money. So let's say you do a five-year fixed term, $200,000 mortgage, after the end of five years, it's probably paid down to like 185,000 or something. They'll auto renew you on a new rate and you don't have to re-qualify. Re but if you want to borrow more money, you'd need the salary. All right. Are you Polish? No, I'm not. Rum, oh, I might be like 1%, who knows? I mean, my grandmother was adopted, so like there's some mystery there, some European mystery, but um, I'm pretty sure I'm not Polish. Rum T says, hey Mike, hey, how you doing? Raptor says, how long would you wait to invest in downtown Toronto prices? Or are they still going down the condo market? Um, I don't know, I don't have a crystal ball, but I hear things are down, so you might be able to find a off-market deal in Toronto, especially in the downtown core with COVID, people are kind of moving out. I think there's gonna be a trend long-term with people working from home, people moving outside of the major metropolitan, because there's no need to live right downtown anymore. And the appeal of that downtown life is gone. And so, or at least diminish significantly. And so I'm long-term bullish on the rural plays outside of major metropolitans, as more so than I am in the major metropolitans. Now, if you're like three hours away in Windsor, that's a different story, that's not a major metropolitan. So I'm not betting on extreme growth there. Hi Mike, great advice as always. Hey, thank you. Hey Mike, been watching for a little bit now, just purchased my first property, has three bedroom, Plan, renting the other two out. Hey, right on, house hacking, love it. Ram T says, do you suggest investing in a rental property in the US or private lending in Canada or both? Uh, I can't just suggest one over the other. It, it depends on your goals and your preferences. It could make sense to buy the property. There's also tax ramifications of doing both. Um, I personally, from a time perspective, like private lending as opposed to investing in active real estate. But if you have the time or the passion for it, then maybe it makes more sense to do that. So it depends is the answer. Anyway, it's been a good hour. I've appreciated y'all tuning in and watching. I'll see you next week, like I do every week, live 7 p.m. to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time every Wednesday for the Mike Rosart Show. This has been, what, episode, geez, we're well over 120 episodes now. I should start, I should actually label all the episodes. That'd be smart. Someone should go ahead and do that for me. <laughs> I think I deleted one by accident too. So we're actually, we actually lost one episode like two years ago. I deleted one. Um, it's a mistake. And the second one, I think I deleted on purpose. I said something in it that I did, didn't want to have the legal ramifications of what I said in that video to be held against me. Some investment advice or something I gave and I didn't pre-qualify it. And someone commented and was like, you could get sued for saying this. And I was like, good point. Can I delete this video? Um, but yeah, I try to go live and I, I go candid for you guys. And I hope you can appreciate that I do it every week and um, I'm consistent. So that's something that I think in whatever you do, you should be consistent and you'll have the most success. As always, the secret to unlocking a wealthier you, three levers to control your financial future.
spend less, earn more, and maximize returns on the difference. Thanks everyone, and we'll see you all next week. I should put it in a playlist, that's a great idea. I have a playlist, I just have to add them all to a playlist. It's a good idea, but then I have to log back in, and just so lazy. Um, I could put so much more time into this channel, I could do so much better. All right everyone, I'll try to spend more time in the new year, that'll be a resolution. Bye everyone, have a good Wednesday.